We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Ezra. So if you will, go to Ezra chapter 7. Aaron, uh, he wrote, or he read a portion of it. We're going to look at the entire chapter. Ezra chapter 7. In 1790, George Washington wrote these words. He wrote, quote, The establishment of our new government seemed to be the last great experiment for promoting human happiness. According to George Washington, America is an experiment. Now, the last few months, we've been reminded time and time again of that experiment. It is, after all, an election year. So you turn on the news, politics is front and center. You know, you, you scroll through your social media thread, politics front and center. You, you walk and get your mail, you know, hoping for that Sports Illustrated or whatever, and you get more political advertisements. Or, or you're just driving in Puyallup, and, and on pretty much every major intersection you see uh, bulletin boards with various candidates, or if you go to a major intersection, you see men, women, and children with signs holding up their political candidate, and all of them, even if they're contrasting, you know, the different candidates that are running against each other, all of them are basically communicating the same thing, which is a vote for this candidate will promote greater human flourishing and happiness. Well, as of today, we're deep in the political season, and it all comes to a head in a couple of days, doesn't it? On election day. Now, some candidates will inevitably win. Other candidates will inevitably lose. Some of you will be happy with the outcome or some of the outcome. Others will be unhappy with the outcome, while others will just be happy it's all over. So what do we make of all of this? Well, regardless of your political stance, regardless of your political convictions or leanings, or convictions, my guess is you have some level of political worry, anxiety, and tension. You've got some level of anxiety. That, that seems to be the given. So what do we do in the midst of this? What do we do? Well, I think the book of Ezra really helps us. These past few months, we've been studying the book of Ezra, and it, it really is a book all about renewal, a book about God renewing his people. God brought his people out of exile after they had been in bondage and in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And this morning, as we come to chapter 7, my prayer is for us that you'll be reminded of something, that, that this text will ground all of us that whatever level of anxiety you might be experiencing, whatever tension or worry you might be experiencing, that you would be able to take a deep breath and know that everything's going to be okay. And that you know that God is in control. God is the fancy theological word. God is sovereign. God's in the driver's seat. God knows our fears and God is strong enough and powerful enough to carry our fears. 
Now, if you look at Ezra chapter 7, it breaks down really quite easy for us. In verses 1 through 10, you're introduced to a man, Ezra. Now, maybe as we've been going through this series, you're like, why in the world is this book called Ezra? He doesn't even show up. Finally, he shows up in chapter 7. And so in verses 1 through 10, we get a, a sort of introduction to this man. And then in verses 11 through 26, we have another letter from another king. In chapter 1, we had a letter from King Cyrus. In chapter 6, we had a letter from King Darius. And now, in chapter 7, we have a letter from King Artaxerxes. And then, after this letter, we have verses 27 and 28, in which, in first, if you look at the pronoun difference between verses 1 and 10 and verses 27 and 28, they shift. It goes from the third person down in verse 27 and 28 to the first person. And so here we have Ezra's sort of prayerful, it's, it's almost like a benediction. It's a prayerful commentary on what's going on. So sort of putting all this together, let me just lay out the big idea, the simple big idea for us this morning in Ezra chapter 7. And it's this, and we're going to break it down and work our way through it. The big idea is that the king sends a teacher to beautify the house of God. That's what we're going to look at today. Chapter 7 opens with a clue that, that, well, time is going fast, right? We're fast-forwarding in our story. In chapter 6, Darius is the king, but as the text just starts out with, it says after this. Well, that after this is about 60-odd years after the events of chapter 6. And now we're introduced to a new king. The king now of Persia is Artaxerxes. And if you skip down to verse 11, all the way to verse 26, you find the bulk of the chapter is a letter that he writes, or, or, or sort of more precisely, it's a, it's a decree he makes as it relates to Ezra and those who would accompany Ezra back to Jerusalem. In verse 12, the king introduces himself. And then in verse 13, he makes his decree that anyone who wants to go with Ezra has sort of a royal blessing. Now, who, who, who is this king? And not only that, but why in the world would this king allow Ezra and company to leave Babylon under sort of royal protection and go back to Jerusalem? Well, I've said this a few times, but just for review, uh, Persia had a particular foreign policy, which was they would send people back to their home country so that they could worship their gods freely, thereby worshiping, allowing them to sort of dedicate sacrifices to their king. And so that's what we see here. So King Artaxerxes sends them back. Now, now we know that his sort of motives aren't pure. Um, we know that they're probably economic there, there's a sort of self-centeredness to it. I mean, just look down in verse 23. You get the pretty, uh, uh, pretty clear and evident motivation. We read, Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of God in heaven, lest his, God's, wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. There's the motivation of King Artaxerxes. Or maybe the primary reason. He doesn't want the king, 
the, the, the God of the Israelites to be angry with him or his sons. So for him, uh, you could put it like in a, in a sort of mathematical equation, a happy God equals a happy monarch. An unhappy God equals trouble. That, that seems to be some of the motivation, but, but that's not really how Ezra frames this. That, that's not really how the, the reason how Ezra interprets what's going on here. The deeper reason comes in verses 6, 9, and 28. Really, the entire chapter is framed by this big idea, and we see it in verses 6, 9, and 28. A phrase comes up in those three sections. The hand of God. Let me just read verse 6, 9, and 28. Verse 6. The king granted to him, that is Ezra, all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Then verse 9. For the, for the first day of the first month he, that is Ezra, began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the first month he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. Then if you skip down to verse 28. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And the hand of the Lord was on Ezra, and as such, God's blessing followed him. Now, in many ways, this is the sort of clue to interpret this chapter, and it's to realize that actually there's not just one king in this text. There's actually Two kings, and one king is greater than the other king. Well, the first king is pretty self-evident. It's Artaxerxes, and he reigned from 465 to 425 B.C. Remember, before Christ, you, you got to go the opposite way. And he had vast authority, right? In, in verse 12, he calls himself the king of kings, which when you think about it, was literally true. He, was, he had many victories over other kings, so he was literally a king over other kings. The Persian Empire to this day is one of the biggest and greatest empires that have ever existed in the world. And yet, that king, King Artaxerxes, he still pays homage to another king, a heavenly king. Yes, the king sent Ezra. Yes, the king blessed Ezra. Yes, the king kept him safe on his journey. But not ultimately. That's not how Ezra wants us to see this. That's not how Ezra frames this. The text is really clear. It really wasn't the hand of Artaxerxes that gave Ezra favor and success and protection. It was another king. The king over this smaller king. The king of heaven. The ultimate king, the Lord God, the king whom Israel worshipped. That king was ultimately responsible for this kind of pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. Artaxerxes, as great as he was, was still smaller than the king of kings and lord of lords. That's how this text is laid out. You have almost concurrent motivations. The king is doing these things, but over the king is God, the ultimate king, orchestrating all these things according to his will. 
God's hand is guiding God's people to God's willful end. Now, we see this in this text, but, but this is how life works. This is how our life works as well. And I'll just give you a little example from my life. When I was, uh, I think it was 20 years old, I met a girl. I met a woman. I pursued her. I went on a date with her. I then went to Africa with her. I then asked her to go on a date, another date, to be my girlfriend. I then told her I loved her. I then got a ring and proposed to her. And then about a year later, I married her. That all is literally true. But that's not really the truest way to tell this story. In reality, I met a girl named Lisa at a Christmas party. I, I, I remember when she walked in, time stood still. I remember what she was wearing to this day. And I said, I'm going to hit on her tonight. <laughs> and I did. It was horrible. It went absolutely wrong. That is a story for another time. But it went horribly wrong. And yet, God's hand was still upon this whole thing. I then orchestrated this whole thing where we went on a group date. It too was a disaster. Then I decided to go on a short-term uh, mission trip for about 10 weeks to Africa. And I walked in for our first team meeting and there she was. A coincidence? I don't think so. God's hand was upon this relationship. Then we went to Africa, 10 weeks. I got malaria, ringworm. I lost 20 pounds. And by the end, I had a, a really long beard. And let me just say, it wasn't one of those cool hipster beards, it, right? It's, it's not like a, a cool beard like Ben Spector. Not that kind of beard. It's, it's like one of those beards that when you see someone walking, you like cross the street. <laughs> that kind of a beard. I was about as unattractive as one could be. And yet God's hand was upon this whole thing. Well, I got back and then I decided, oh, well, I'm going to really ask this girl out. And so I did it in the most creepy, weird way. I did one of those, um, I like you, I want to date you, I want to marry you in like 30 second conversations. Don't do that. But I did that. pretty much self-sabotaged it, and yet God's hand was upon it. I could go on. My point is pretty simple. I tried everything in my power to orchestrate this whole thing, and yet I couldn't orchestrate it. It really was the hand of God that guided this whole thing. And that's what we find in this text here. That God's hand guides us. God's hand guides his people. And really, the, the, the more we understand this, the more we sort of come to grips with this reality, I think just uh, by way of application, and it's even in this text, something just flows out of it. I think we're, we're emboldened. I, I think we have courage in light of that reality. I mean, just, just look at that first or that last verse that I read earlier. Verse 28. Or verse 27. No, yeah, verse 28. It says, And I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. As he thought about and meditated on the hand of God, 
the favor of God, the blessing of God in his life, it emboldened him. It gave him courage. If you notice, look, his courage was not in himself. His courage was not in his abilities. His courage was not in his skills. His courage was not in his might or even the might of the king of Persia, which was a lot of might. That's not where his courage flowed from. His courage flowed downhill from the hand of God. It's a bit like another text, Isaiah 41, verse 10. One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite promises in the Old Testament. So do not fear. God, God's speaking. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What is the antidote to fear? What is the antidote to worry? What is the antidote to not being very courageous? How is it that we can have courage like Ezra? Well, it's when we realize that courage doesn't come from our own hand. Courage comes from realizing that God's grip is really strong. And he won't let you go. Courage comes as we understand that God upholds us. It's not when we pretend that we're not fearful or when we kind of diminish our fear pretend that we're just, oh, we're doing great. We're not fearful. There's nothing to worry about. That's not where our courage comes from. Our courage comes as we articulate our fears and then realize that in the midst of those fears, God is, his hand is still upon us and that God can carry those fears. That's how Ezra was courageous and that's how we can be courageous in light of our fears is to put our trust and faith in the hand of God in his mighty power that his hand is stronger than all of the hands that we might find in this world. Now that's the first kind of point that we need to consider which is who this king is but next I want to look at what this king does. Go back to verse 1 with me. Starting in verse 1, we learn that the king sends a teacher. In verse 1 through 5, you have Ezra, and he's introduced, and he's introduced by way of a genealogy. And we didn't read them, but if you were to read them, you could scan them quickly. Many of these names are going to go, I don't know who these people are. And it's fine that you don't know. But there's one name that you should know. It's the last name in verse 5. Look, look at it. The last name listed, verse 5, says, Son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. In the book of Exodus, God leads his people out of Egypt. God then constitutes his people into a new people, forms them into a new community, gives them a a sort of divine constitution to live by, gives them a tabernacle so that God will, will be in their midst, and then God sets up priests in order to protect them and provide sort of spiritually for them and to minister in that tabernacle. And the man to start it all, that first priest, that chief priest was Aaron. 
So, so sort of right out of the gate, when we learn who this Ezra is, we learn about his pedigree, his lineage, his connection is to Aaron, the chief priest, that, that sort of first priest out of the Exodus, the priest whom God used with Moses to bring God's people out from under the bondage of the Egyptians. And so Moses and Aaron brought God's people out of Egypt. And so here we have Ezra depicted sort of as a second Moses, a second Aaron, leading God's people out on a second exodus. That's not the only thing we learn. Starting in verse 6, we learn something very, very interesting. That Ezra left Babylon and he left Babylon with, with sort of a portion of God's people there in Babylon. He, he left with some priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers and some temple servants in the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes. And they traveled to Jerusalem. Now, that was a four-month journey. They traveled about 10 miles a day in the, the sort of hottest point of the year. Uh, my family and I drove in August or late July to Spokane um, and w- to visit some family. And as we were doing it, as we were going over the Columbia River around Vantage, it, the temperature soared past 100 degrees. And I'm not kidding you, right when that happened, our air conditioner broke and hot air started just pouring out. And I was trapped in a car with six people who were all panicking, like it was just all hell broke loose. And I learned a valuable lesson. This is just an aside, but I learned something, that I would have been the worst pioneer on the Oregon Trail. <laughs> like a week into it, I would have gone, all right, we're going back to Missouri or whatever, right? I would have been like, I, I would have wanted to die from dysentery. That's a joke from the old Oregon Trail game. All right. Well, Ezra and company leave for for four months traveling with men, women, and presumably children all the way on this sort of royal pilgrimage back to Jerusalem under royal protection. And then in verse 8, they arrive. Now, not only do we find out that that Ezra sort of is, is from this great priestly line, the line of Aaron, and not only do we find that he sort of like is, uh, is one of those great kind of pioneers, like he is disciplined. He, he's not just disciplined in that. He's also disciplined in the law of God. Look at verse 6. This is, in one sense, the most important detail about Ezra. He's described as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. The word translated skill there, it has its roots in the idea of speed. Ezra knew God's word so well that he could with speed sort of apply God's word or execute judgments according to God's word. He was an expert in the law of God. Then you go down to verse 10. We read that that he set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And then then down in verse 11, Ezra is described as a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes for Israel. Ezra wasn't just from the right family. He was from the right family, but he was also wise in the word of God. He was disciplined in studying God's word. We could put it kind of in 
modern vernacular. You, you've heard this before. You know, Ezra was a man of the word. And that quality, it, it wasn't just important. That quality, that, that truth, that skill, that ability to be competent with God's word was precisely what made him suitable for the work that he was going to do in Jerusalem. Now, we're going to see that work and that ministry in uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10. I'm not going to preach that sermon to you. But right out of the get-go, as we're introduced to him, what we need to know and realize is that Ezra is a man of the word. He's someone competent in the word. He's someone who meditates and studies God's word. If you go on to verse 25, even the king realizes this. In many ways, this is why the king sent Ezra. The king uh, commissions Ezra, verse 25, according to the wisdom of our God that in your hand he wants him to appoint magistrates and judges who will judge all the people in the province beyond the river. King Artaxerxes is sending Ezra so that he can teach and raise up teachers to teach God's law in Jerusalem. Ezra was a man of the word. Verse 10 puts it this way. I read a part of it, but I want to read the full sentence there. Verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Do you, do you guys notice that description? That, that three-fold description? Ezra studied God, God's word, and having studied God's word, he then applies God's word, and then having applied God's word, he teaches God's word. Now, by way of application, I think Ezra is a model to us. We want to be a church that studies God's word. Not, not only that, we want to be a church that not only studies God's word, but does God's word, applies God's word. And then having studied God's word and applied God's word, we want to be a church that teaches God's word. One, one of my prayers, if you're you know, wanting to know, one of my prayers for our church long term is that we would be a church that so studies God's word and applies God's word that we would raise up so many teachers of God's word that we would know how to use them. And we'd have to start exporting teachers of God's word to other teachers because our bench would be so deep. Because that's what happens. Wherever there is a famine of the teaching and studying of God's word, you'll find a famine of teachers. But wherever there is a gluttony of studying and applying God's word, you're going to find a plenty of God's teachers of God's word. And that's what we want to do as a church. We want to study God's word. We want to apply God's word. And we want to teach God's word. And, and if you're sitting there going, well, okay, yeah, that's for preachers or maybe missionaries. Maybe you're thinking, well, I mean, I don't think I have the gift of teaching. I don't want to be a small group leader or a Bible study leader. Well, I think Ezra's model is still for all of us. All of us are called to make disciples. All of us are called to make disciples. All of us are called to make disciples. Now, the question is, how do we make disciples? And the answer in Matthew 28 and the Great Commission is pretty simple. We're to go and make disciples. How? 
by teaching to obey all that Jesus has commanded. All of us are called to make disciples, and therefore, in one sense, all of us are called to be teachers of God's word. Ezra was a mighty man in God's word. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that described, and that's how other people would describe you as a man or a woman who was competent and skilled, who knew God's word? The first president of Multnomah School of the Bible was uh, said sort of metaphorically that, that if you cut him, he would bleed Bible. That as he talked and prayed and lived his life, just the Bible seeped out of him. Ezra was a man like that. History is filled with men and women like that. And in many ways, the reason is because the Lord Jesus Christ was the ultimate man like that. Jesus came as a teacher. He came as a preacher. He came preaching the kingdom. And when he taught, people were astonished. They couldn't believe how skilled he was at teaching God's word. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be sort of confused or wondering, I mean, why do Christians, why are they just so obsessed with God's word? Why do they read and reread and reread God's word? Well, the reason is that God's word is a love letter. God's God's word, the Bible, is a letter written in love to help us understand the heart of God. And the heart of God is simply this. And that God so loved the world that he would send his only son to die for sinners. That is what Jesus' teaching ministry was all about. Jesus taught over and over again that he brought the kingdom and that kingdom would be inaugurated with his death and resurrection. God's word from beginning to end is all about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. It's all about Jesus and what he came to do. In the Old Testament, it's, it's kind of foreshadowing and, and pro, what's going to happen in the future. And then in the New Testament, it's looking back on what Jesus has done and what Jesus will come again to do. But it's all about Jesus. So if you're not a Christian and you want to study God's word, you want to know what's in it, we would love to do that with you. We've got Bible studies for just that occasion. If you just put your name on a bulletin, drop it off in, in the offering um, basket, uh, we'd love to connect with you. Read God's word. Think through, what is this love letter saying to you? And for the Christians, this should all be a reminder to us of the importance of studying God's word, applying God's word, teaching God's word in our various spheres of, of influence, but then also just the importance of praying for people who teach God's word. So, so pray for me. I love it when I hear you guys praying. It's so encouraging when I hear that you're praying for me or praying for Phil or praying for the elders. When I hear you praying for the women's leadership team who are teaching God's word, uh, praying for small group leaders and Bible study leaders. What a wonderful ministry. Pray for each other as you uh, teach God's word in your homes and as you teach God's word to your neighbors and friends. The king sent a teacher. Isn't that interesting? And now lastly, the purpose of sending this teacher 
It really is to beautify the house of God. Now, the two previous kings were quite generous to the returning exiles, right? King Cyrus and King Darius both financed the building of the temple and the altar. We learned this earlier. But Artaxerxes, he, he, he sort of outdoes his predecessors. Artaxerxes sends silver and gold, verse 16. He gives money and he gives money to purchase animals, verse 17. He gives more gold in 18 vessels in verse 19. And sort of whatever is necessary um, in verse 20 out of the treasury, right? You, you can think of it this way. It, it would be like Bill Gates giving you a blank check or a line of credit. That's what's going on here. Whatever you need. And then in verses 21 through 24, Artaxerxes tells his treasurers to give up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without number. They loved salt, I guess. And then in verse 24, he tells his treasurer to give tax exemption to the priests and workers of the temple. Amen. All of this is lavish. It's amazing. I think in one sense we're meant to think back to that first temple, Solomon's temple. In 1 Kings, where in 1 Kings 10, the wealth of the nations come in to display the splendor of this temple, the splendor of God's house. That was the purpose even in Ezra's day. Look down in verse 27. You want to know why this, this wealth, this splendor, this, this lavish giving of the king, why he does this? Well, verse 27 tells us, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as in to the house, into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, the temple was meant to be beautiful. The temple was meant to be glorious. It was meant to be lavish. Why? Because it was to communicate symbolically something of the glory and beauty and prestige and, you know, just absolute kind of uh, majesty of the temple. That's why there was so much gold there. It's supposed to depict in a small way just the worth and glory of God. And so that's what we have here. We have sort of a, a picture of the beauty of the temple that's supposed to symbolize the beauty of the Lord. But if you fast forward in our story and you get to Jesus when he arrives at the temple, and I just might add, Herod, he, he makes it even more beautiful. And yet Jesus, when he enters the temple, he doesn't think it's beautiful at all, does he? You know, he, he throws tables, he chases money changers out, he calls the temple a den of robbers. The temple in Jesus' day had become a den of robbers. It wasn't beautiful. It was something other than beauty. Now why? Well, simply this. Because God's people had forgotten not just the purpose of the temple, but the promise of the fulfillment of the temple. And the promise of the fulfillment of the temple in the Messiah to come. The beauty of the temple was never ultimately weighed in gold. The beauty of the temple was always weighed in what that temple pointed to. 
Ezra's temple and how beautiful it was, it was just pointing to the beauty of the coming Jesus Christ who was the temple, who is the temple, because Jesus is the mechanism in which God and sinful humanity can be at peace. That's what the temple does. The temple was a temporary means of allowing man, a sinful man, into the presence of God. And when Jesus came and he lived and he died, the temple was obsolete. Jesus was the ultimate temple. And so the temple in Ezra's days, as beautiful it was, just pales in comparison to the beauty of Jesus. And when that happens, we have at the very end worship. Did you notice this? Ezra begins to sort of worship in light of this, the beauty of the temple. I think in some sense we're also to, uh, to see in here, not, not just Jesus as the temple, we're supposed to see the end of the story as well. If you go to uh, Revelation 21, you actually have kings bringing their splendor, their wealth, their glory, and setting it before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Those kings are the redeemed humanity. And they come in bringing their wealth, suggesting that God is worthy. We know the Sunday school answer that, that Jesus is beautiful. That's easy to answer, yes. He is glorious, majestic, good. The question is, there's so many things in our lives that rob us of experiencing that truth, aren't there? It's sometimes easy to forget that, that Jesus isn't beautiful. Chapter 7 ends with worship. Ezra's worshiping God because God delivers on his promises. God is he who can be trusted. God, his hand was on his people, leading them out of exile to renew his people. And he had courage. He put his worry and trust in God as the ultimate promise keeper because God was sustaining them all along, even in the exile. Have no worries, as Jesus himself says. He has overcome. Now, I, I said earlier that according to George Washington, America is an experiment. But, but what about the establishment of God's people? Is that an experiment? Well, experiments can go wrong. Experiments are not binding. Experiments have hypotheses. God's people are not an experiment. God's people are a divine reality. That's what Ezra teaches us this morning. God had every right to wash his hands of God's people because of their idolatry and sin and just leave him in Babylon and he doesn't do it. He doesn't wash his hands. He grips them and brings them out of exile to renew them. God's people are not an experiment that God will walk away from. God's people are a divine reality with a divine purpose to worship God because of the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's what we learn in this chapter. L let's pray. Let's, let's go to the Lord and pray. 
Lord, we, we, we are once again reminded that you are beautiful, and yet we confess simultaneously that there are so many things that try to dampen our worship for you. Forgive us. Remind us time and time again of your mercy and grace and love in which you lavish on your people. Remind us that whatever happens, come this week, come next month, come next decade, your hand is upon us. May that encourage us. May that embolden us. May that sustain us. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.